Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome along to a brand new Rice's Routine. This week we're chatting to Scott Kershaw. His debut is a breakneck high concept thriller. It's called The Game. We talk about how he's managed to write in between renovating a house, proving that you can write anywhere really. Uh, Also, how much music changes his mood, when it works, what he listens to. Uh, Also, you can hear how after getting an agent, he worked with them to figure out what might just get published. I was just really lucky in the sense that they were just very down to earth and spoke literally like this, like we're talking now, just spoke about it and just said, this is what I think could work. This is what I'd like to write. And yeah, like I said, just based on, from page one, I wrote that in, I don't know, maybe two weeks. Just absolutely smashed it out, sent it in, not really thinking much of it by this point after quite a few disappointments and Oh, yeah, they just replied like, yeah, let's do it. There is more on the way with Scott Kershaw in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome to the show. My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you for following, downloading, listening to us. Uh, This is Writer's Routine. It's where we take a look inside the working day uh, of some of the best authors around. All sorts of authors as well. If you go back through our back catalogue in your podcast feeds, you'll see some who have published their 200th book that have sold millions and millions of copies. And we bring you a whole host of debuts as well. If that's where you are right now, hopefully it will give you some inspiration. How someone else pretty much in your shoes has got their novel out. This week, it's Scott Kershaw. Now, he's had a very interesting route into writing quite unusual he'll go into more detail in the chat but the headlines for you he left school with almost no qualifications signed up as a mature student in college his work was then spotted by the head of writing at Hull University and despite having no A-levels or even doing a UCAS application he was offered a place and graduated with a first class degree in creative writing It's all led to this debut, The Game. It follows five strangers from all around the world who get a warning that their most loved person is in danger and the only way to save them is to play the game. It's chilling, it's gripping, it's a bit squid gamey, a bit sorry, but with much less gore, don't worry, in it. It makes you think, it makes you ask that question that I think all good books do. What would you do? 
Now, you can hear the first chapter from the audiobook at the end of the podcast to get a real sense of the story. We talk about why he's a scribbler and a scrawler, also how he's managed to write in between renovating a house and how music helps his mood. You can hear how he worked with an agent and editor to get it sorted when he knew there someone was interested in publishing something that he worked on. And with quite a lot of authors, it's never the first thing that you write that gets published. Often that lets people know this person's got something. And then how do you work that through? What do you do next? Now, as you might have heard in the intro clip, uh, the audio quality isn't fantastic for this. Uh, I apologize. I blame Zoom. But there are loads of good tips along the way, so stick around to the end as well because, as I mentioned, you can hear the fantastic first chapter of the game to get a real good grip of what the story's like. Uh, It's with Scott Kershaw this week, so let's dive into it and start as we always do with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. Well, at the minute, I actually don't have a place to write at all. So, at the minute, I'm sitting on a sofa and the last book that I've written has been written in a kitchen, a dining room, on a sofa, and in bed. Because I actually don't own a desk, which is annoying. Do you have any? Do you have any problem with where you write? Are, are you pretty chilled out about different spaces? Do you prefer one over than the other? How does that work? I, if I did it my way, I would have a nice office. But we um, we moved into an old cottage that we're renovating. And the idea was to get an office like smashed out really quick and have this amazing writing space. And it's currently just full of tools and impossible to sit in. So, yeah, pretty much any room that's not being built that week is where I have to like sit in the corner and quickly doodle some writing out. What do you take with you? Is there anything consistent? Just you and a laptop, maybe? Yeah, literally just me and this dusty old MacBook and notes. I'm like a big scribble on post-its kind of guy so i just have piles and piles of yellow post-its and yellow legal pads and i have to scribble everything down and stuff it sprawled out around me which is a nightmare because then the dog always starts to rip it up and yeah it's a real pain so get a, get a desk is my advice <laughs> if i were to pick up one of your post-it notes a scrap of legal paper maybe would i have any understanding of what was written there would, would does it make any sense to someone other than you no i doubt it no it'll literally be like three words on it in a big sharpie um which yeah they're just kind of like like hooks that bring me back into it when i forget something i'll see it and i'll be like oh, yeah i need to put that in or, so yeah no it won't be much use to anyone else and take us through what's on the laptop then uh listeners to this show we can get quite into very niche writing things so what like software are you writing on what font do you write with so it's just standard microsoft word for some reason i've always written in times new roman i think it's because when i was a kid and you do your best work at school on the computer it was always in times new roman so that's kind of stuck so i always do that for some reason and yeah it's just a microsoft word I have one document that tends to be open on like the left of the screen in like the Mac setup. So I have like one word document there, which is the going from start to finish of a chapter. And then on the right, I just have like the pieces of it. And then I kind of just 
copy them across but write them out fully if that makes sense so the one on the right is literally just scribbled lines like maggie walks into room drops something and swears and then on the left i'll kind of like scroll it out into their paragraphs i guess so you've got quite a a simple writing life at the moment which is fantastic say in a few books time when hopefully the game has sold millions and millions of copies and you've got your perfect writing set up uh, built uh, how how would it look what what would you what would you like around you to try and get the best out of your day so if it was to schedule even now like how i expected it to be so just a really nice desk so the the reason we got this cottage out in the middle of nowhere is we were living in grimsby which is where I'm from and grew up. And we've moved out into like the walls. So there's like where the study should be. as like a big window that overlooks literally directly outside the window. It's like loads of sheep and donkeys and stuff. So the idea was it'd be this really peaceful kind of zen place. There'll be a desk in front of the window, sit there and chill. And then like the left wall would just be floor to ceiling bookshelves. Because there's just like all writers, I guess, just tons and tons of books. Half of them read, half of them not. How much do you think that will change what you do? I mean, you've managed to publish a book uh, writing ad hoc as you have been. Do, do you think getting your own writing space will, will at all affect things? Yeah, massively. I think some of the best advice that you hear all the time from writers, and I totally agree, is you need your own space. And this has been challenging, really challenging. But you can do it. It's also proof that you can do it anywhere or in any situation i mean you know like i said the game was literally written between this i mean i'm renovating the house myself so i have to do like a day on it a day smashing things down in the house and then quickly write on the evening and so it can be done you can write a book anyway you just really need to push yourself to do it in any dusty situation so i'm a binge writer so I won't write anything for days, but then when I start, I like find it really difficult to stop. So I get up, get a coffee. It's usually, I mean, I'm not a morning person at all. In fact, I hate morning. So it's usually about 10 o'clock is like a good time for me to start writing. And then I will just sit in front of the computer and pretty much write till I stop, which is about, I don't know, 1 or 2 a.m. Um. And yeah, I'll just sit like that, just sit with music absolutely blaring in my face usually to just keep me going. And yeah, just push through. Obviously, I have snacks, but that's about it. So if you're writing like that, how long does it take you to get a, a first draft done if you're you know, really cracking through the hours on the days when you are writing? It depends. So like the first book that didn't get published, like most writers, I had a first book that didn't sell, but got me my agent. That took a couple of years because it was in between rubbish jobs like washing pots all the time and stuff. Um, so yeah, that took a couple of years. Now, if I was actually sat and just did it, I don't know, a few months, maybe I'd be able to have one done in like five months, probably from page one. And this binge style of writing you're doing, how many days are you writing a week then? So it depends if it's like coming up to a deadline or if I've really, if I'm just feeling it. Some weeks you're just really feeling it. So it can just be, I don't know, five days, six days. I mean, it's not unusual for me to, much to, you know, everyone who knows me, the annoyance of them. It gets to sort of the end or I'm really feeling it and you just do like 
two or three weeks straight without a day stopping and then just probably don't let it again for like another three weeks. So yeah, it's kind of like, like that. How practical is that? I mean, if it, it, hopefully in a few years time or whatever, when you're, you know, cracking through books and you're really getting them out there. Um, is, is this something that you would like to carry on with or at all? Would you like to get yourself into a more uh, like ritualed, writing routine where you're doing almost like a nine to five or have you just got no time or patience for that? No, absolutely. That is like the dream. I think everyone who starts out writing kind of dreams, that's the life I'll have. Like I'll just have a regular job that is being an author. Um, Yeah. I mean, I want it to be like that. I think it's because that first book that I wrote and, you know, for a couple of years after that, I was chefing. So working in a restaurant, and I think it was just so intense the way that like chefing culture is to write around that as well. You very much fall into that pattern of you're working like six days, you know, you don't see daylight basically, you're just in the kitchen six days, then you'd have one day off if you're lucky, quickly smash as much writing as you can out, and then back to work. And I think that culture kind of stays with you after you leave a restaurant, unfortunately. And you get stuck in those, yeah, just that binge lifestyle. I think those days when you are when you are writing and you're, you know, you sat there for hours and hours and hours on end. How do you, like, how does your focus go? How do you chart the way that your energy kind of comes and, and goes? Do you have fits and bursts, or, or are you pretty, you know, you're pretty good at being there the whole time, present and writing? I'm pretty good. I- I start to like ebb off. I tend to use music, like depending on what music you can hear coming from wherever I'm sat in the house tends to show like how I'm struggling with writing. So in when it's going well and I'm really chilled, it'll just be something old, like folky or jazzy or even classical, just something literally just noise. But then, yeah, when I need to pick me up, you'll know, because it'll usually just be some, I don't know, you'll just hear the clash blasting or some old punk records. So, yeah, I can use that and just, yeah, every time you start coming down, just blast something in your face. It usually keeps you going. So in the morning on these days when you are writing pretty relentlessly, how much do you know about what you need to get done? Is there an aim? Is there a word count uh, at, at all? Yeah, I tend to have I tend to have a really, like, I overestimate what I can do, put it that way. So I'll sit there and I'll be like, right, today I really want to push it from, I don't know, 25,000 words, I want to push it to 30,000, which will be about a third of the book. Like, I really want that, to hit that milestone. And yeah, I think that's a good way to do it. And it works for a lot of people, but it's also, it adds a lot of stress to you because it can be like counterproductive. You start hitting, you know, it's getting dark outside or tea time's gone, like well gone, and you're still nowhere near it. And then you get really stressed and you're like, you're like, oh, no, I really, really need to hit this. I, I promised myself I'd hit this. But it's actually, yeah, really counterproductive because you start obsessing over it and that slows you down because you like stressing. So, yeah, it's not a great way to do it, to be honest, but it works. <laughs> what about the the plot? How much of that do you know when you're sat there at the start of your day? Have you any idea what what's coming next, where where you want to finish up in, in, in terms of the, the actual story? I'm a quite a big plotter. I don't know. I'd, I'd say I'm in the middle of plotting. You know, I've listened to 
a lot of your episodes and some people are really, you know, into plotting. And mine tends to be those post-it notes. So like I said, they'll just be scraps everywhere. And again, I think that's because I used to write whilst working in kitchens, chefing. I used to have to scribble everything on the back of like, you know, order pads that waitresses and waiters would bring through. So I'd scribble scenes on them dead quick, like goes to car wash. And then that's like, yeah, that's kind of as plotted as it gets. And then I'll just end up with all these scraps of paper on backs of receipts all over the place. And I have to step back and be like, okay, so if each one of these is a scene, shuffle them around on the floor or if I can tack them to a wall, keep just shuffling them. And then, yeah, when I guess I sit on my writing day, I'll be like, right, I'd really like to get to that scene today. So I just have to stretch and connect and try to make it work. Now, quite often and quite recently on the show, people are very keen on hearing publication stories because we, you know, we've got quite a lot of listeners who just simply don't know how to get there. They don't know how to get their book out there. And I know that you've had quite an unusual route into writing from being at school and then leaving really without much and, and kind of growing from there. Can you just run us through how you've got to the point of the game being out and in bookshops? Okay, yeah. So, yeah, you're right. When I left school, I I wasn't a very good student at the end of school, to put it bluntly. So, yeah, I left with not the basic amount of GCSEs that you'd expect, that indeed most people expected of me because I should have done better. I just had a really bad attitude. So left school and then just started working loads of terrible jobs for a few years. Always read a lot, always wanted to write. And then it wasn't until there was like a scheme they used to run back then. And it was like a Labour government run scheme that tracked down past students who had basically fallen off the map. They'd say, you know, what went wrong? And they tracked me down and said, you know, we've looked at your past thing. You didn't get great GCSEs, but you were really good in English if you never thought about going back into writing. So they got me onto like a journalism course which I always call a pity course. They like helped me and just got me onto it. And then while I was doing that, I only did it for a couple of weeks and it was just horrible, absolutely terrible. It was full of Grimsby kids who didn't want to be there. And then somehow, I can't remember how, but a piece of my writing basically ended up with a guy who won the degree for professional writing. He saw it and he came and just, I don't know, kind of Willy wonked me out of there. He was just a really nice guy. And he was like, look, I think you can do better than this. What a fantastic like description, by the way. I've never heard that as a verb, that someone's Willy Wonka the way out of there. That's great. No. Yeah, I haven't until it just fell out of my mouth. And now I, I don't know if it works or I sound stupid. But yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it, just, it was just one of those occasions where sometimes you just, somebody helps you out and... He got me onto this degree. I didn't have any of the UCAS points or anything. Um, I was still not great on the degree, to be fair. Like, I was, I tried. I really liked the writing and stuff, but, you know, I wasn't there for a lot of it. And I started touring with a band at the time, not my band. There was a band that were touring Europe who were friends of mine. And their record company basically said I could go and write a book about them. So I ended up doing this, like, almost famous thing where, for a couple of years, I just went around Europe with them writing a book. Um, I used the book to get my degree. That was like my final major project, but it never got published. So with it not getting published, once again, you just fall back, especially in a town like Grimsby. I mean, it's my hometown, but 
there was no real opportunity for a writer. So I graduated, then literally fell back off the writing map, fell into just working, you know, minimum wage jobs again. Um, and then it was a few years later, I went on holiday with some friends and literally whilst there on a plane, um, one of the guys I was with was like, well, oh, Scott, you always want to write books, don't you? Why don't you write one about blah, blah, blah? And he actually said a really good idea um, for a book. So I just started writing it on the plane. Uh, this was the book that never got published. So came home. I was still living at mum's at the time, just sitting in a little attic room writing it. So yeah, that took me a couple of years to write. And then the way to do it, the way to get published is literally, I always say, just finish your book. Like, finish your book, send it out, which is what I did. Managed to get an agent with it. Like I said, the book didn't sell. How did you know, sorry, Scott, how did you know who to send it to? Uh, so I got, oh man, I can't remember what they called it. It's like the Writer's Yearbook or something. So uh, this is years ago now. And they released one every year. Man, I showed them my research into what I used to do. So yeah, I'm sure it's called like the... Oh, here you go. Sorry, I think it might be called the Writer's and Artist's Yearbook. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, that's it, yeah. So they release one every year. And it just has a whole section in it of every agent, whether independent or like the big ones in London or whatever. And it has just the deets on them. You literally go to that chapter and it has their address and their submission email on it. This is how I used to do it back then. I mean, this was, I don't know, like 10 years ago. And that's it. I went through there, flicked through, just put down every email address, wrote a personalized email to each of them, like, the ones obviously that I thought might be interested. Don't, you know, don't go sending, if you write a sci-fi, don't go sending it to Mills and Boone because, you know, if it's an agent who only deals with erotica and you've just written a kid's book, like, don't do it because they won't take it, believe it or not. I tried. So, yeah, I just did that. Literally sent it, found some agents in this book that was recommended by that tutor off the degree was like, because he used to be a professional, well, he's a professional writer. He just said, get this book, find what they like, what the agency's into, what, you know, what kind of people they are, be personal, don't just send a blanket email and just literally try to sell yourself to them. And that's what I did. I was just like, hi, you know, I'm a new writer. Uh, I've written this novel with X amount of words. It's about whatever. You just put all that on a first email and send in I think I sent about 10,000 words as a sample um, and then I guess I was really lucky or whatever you want to call it because I expected it to be months before they turned me down and I think it was literally within about 30 hours Rory my agent called me left me a voicemail and was like yeah we love it come down and meet us and we want to represent you and that was it Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll be back with more from Scott Kershaw in just a sec talking about the game. I very quickly wanted to pop up to remind you that if you're enjoying the show, if you like what we do, if you like the tips and the tricks that we bring you pretty much every week, you can help that continue, help carry on hearing the best authors around as often as possible by supporting the show at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. And it doesn't take a lot, I promise. Thank you so much. If you are involved, if you are supporting us, just a few dollars a month really helps us carry on. It helps us keep bringing you these chats with the greatest around as often as we can. For that, uh, you get merch. There is bonus content for you if you fancy it. Uh, there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show. And it doesn't matter if you live overseas. I'm in the UK. I can, I can post there fairly simply. I know that all the patrons who it took a little bit of time to get their merch if they were overseas are probably rolling their eyes and gritting their teeth right now. But I promise I'm getting on that. And if you would like something, if you would like to support the show, you can make that happen. Help us out. Anything that you can spare goes an extraordinarily long way. I really appreciate it over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Scott Kershaw talking about his debut novel, The Game. Five strangers all have to play a mysterious, sinister game to save their loved ones. In this half, you can hear more about the novel. Also, the first novel that he started working on that he sent to his agent that didn't quite make it. And then what what do you do next? What's the second step after you've put a lot of work into thousands of words for one novel and then your agent takes a look and says, well, I'm not sure if this has got legs. How do you pick yourself up and go again? We talk about that. And remember, you can hear the first chapter from the audiobook at the end. It's a good 10 minute chunk, so well worth listening to. And we pick things up with Scott Kershaw talking about publishing a novel and how it can take quite a while. Everything takes a long time. I don't, you know, publishing is now a big part of my life and I love it, but man everything takes so long honestly <laughs> like you'll send something in and then you just wait and especially if you're like i mean it's a big part of your life you've put into it so you get really obsessive over it you know you've spent two years writing this book you send it in you'll be checking your emails or checking your phone every five minutes through your normal day job you'll just constantly be like come on this could be this could be it you know any minute now i could get an email so then when you finally get one saying it doesn't sell, yeah, it's a bit of a, it's not great. It's not a great day. But yeah, my agent was just so cool about it. He was like, yeah, exactly what you said. You know, a lot of people will then dwell on that and they'll really try to, which I did, to be fair, try to self-publish it. And you can be like, nope, I think it's good enough. You know, forget it. If you don't want this, you know, I'm out of here, fat cats, I'll do it myself. You know, <laughs> he was like, you can do that, but 
you know, your agent's there to give professional advice. He was just like, sit down, man, like put it in a drawer and just start again, literally start again, come up with a new idea. They know who you are now, like people, because they showed interest, like uh, Hodder really liked it. And we got to like meet him and I met the editorial team and stuff. And he was like, they now know who you are. This is part of it. You've just got to now go away, pick yourself up, like, dust yourself off, get on with another book, just do it. And I really didn't want to and almost couldn't because by this point, yeah, I was, I progressed from washing pots to chefing and chefing's crazy, man. It's like, you know, 70 to 90 hour weeks, trying to fit right in in between that, just to come up with a new book. You know, you've got a partner at home, you have to go home like, hey, sorry, like, sorry, I haven't been there for the last couple of years. Now I've got to start again and it made us no money. Um, Well, yeah, just do it. Like, you have to just do it. And I did it. And, you know, years later, who has published the game is actually the person that I sat down and met for that first book who didn't publish it. And it was only because she remembered me years later and you've already kind of got that semi-relationship. And then she was like, okay, let's sit down and look at what you've done. And that was it. And now it's getting published. So, yeah, it worked. Do you get a bit of confidence, the fact that, you've sat in the room with the people and you've got an agent. So when you have to go and write a whole new novel, obviously you're a bit down because you've spent a lot of time working on something that isn't going to be used anymore. But is, is there a little boost thinking, oh, okay, I'm, 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 at least, I'm at least halfway there? Yeah, I think there is, but I'm quite a self-defeatist person in general. I can, it's easy. It's just, it's like grieving a really bad breakup, man. Like you spend so many hours with this thing. And then to be told, you know, good, even though you have an agent and yeah, you've got publishers interested in you, when you go home at night, you kind of sit there like, well, I obviously can't do it because, you know, I haven't got an area of Universal Studios named after me yet or something. Like, yeah, you just sit there like, no, I can't do it. But yeah, you can. You just, that's it. You have to take that on board. You have to be like, well, yeah, I've got an agent. You know, someone is interested. I think with where I was living, you know, living in Grimsby in a very non-writer-friendly community, I'd say. You know, that's another hard thing, like, because you try explaining that to people, because you go out, especially because I was younger then as well, going out every night, and a lot of people, you know, in those kind of communities are like, just give it up. Like, you'll walk in a place and they'll just be like, well, that was a waste of time, wasn't it? <laughs> and you're like, all right, nice one, cheers, lads. So, yeah, you have to... And you try explaining that to them, like, actually, I've an agent and the publisher's pretty good, man. Like, I think, I've, you know, people are interested and they'll just be like, yeah, well, how much money you got to show for it? Well, nothing yet. And they're like, yeah, what's the point then? Give up. So you really have to just push past all that. Well, I did anyway. So you're told you need to go away and write another book and you've now published the game how have you got here when you were told you needed to get a new story what was the first moment that the idea for the game came into your head how, how did you kind of how did it present itself and how did you figure that out well it's been like a really strange kind of route to it because so i opened up to that so i went home i actually started another book like a second book wrote maybe fifteen thousand words of that didn't like it i wasn't really feeling it Sent it to my agent. He was like, I don't think this is, I don't think the time's right for this. Then you've already wasted another six months. You're like, great. But he was right. So I'll start again. So 
then he hooked me up being just a really good agent, you know, having someone help you out. He helped me out. He got me some work co-writing a book with Barrister, which was great. His name's Gary Bell. We did, I helped him do these books. I learned a lot doing that. And then, yeah, after that, I kind of felt a bit more confident again after being knocked down with the first books and then just sat down, yeah, a couple of years ago. Still had some loose contact with Emily. I was talking to Rory, we were just he's my agent, we were just talking about future books. He said, Hey, like, you know, basically this publisher would still be interested, have we got anything we can go to them with? They knew they were looking for something like she wanted a really high concept thriller. And we just sat down and yeah, it's almost like any pitch in any business, just sat down and was like, Okay. So I scribbled out like, I don't know, maybe ten chapters or something. And just sat down with her and was like, what about this? I think this could work. And I was really lucky. So the idea for that, sorry, Scott. So the idea for that story kind of came when you were sat there. How did you, the first embers of what is the game, how does that come to you? Um, So I just knew I really wanted like a character driven piece. I really wanted just to look at all these different characters from around the world. And basically I had this rough idea that I wanted so what it is it's like um you know like the what was known at the time as the torture porn craze of like Saw and Hostel and all these really high concept death game things. And I kinda wanted to take that and flip it on its head and it's just this really rough idea of having it a very character driven piece instead. Kind of take away all the big set pieces and just mess around with people in the book. And yes, yeah, so I it was just a really loose idea like that and then my agent said publisher would be interested if I could convince them with yeah because they'd seen the work I'd done with the barrister co-writing and stuff it was very different tonally to what the the kind of thing that they were after they were like I don't think Scott has the right voice so my agent was like just go away literally I know you can do it just write 10 chapters we'll send it to them as a partial and see if they're interested and yeah we're just really lucky they were they just got into it Emily, my publisher, was great. She just bought into the character straight away. So, yeah, that was how it started. So before you wrote that first sentence, how much did you know about what the game would be? <laughs> I don't think much of anything. I think I literally had some, like, you know, like your notepad in your iPhone. Sometimes I, like, lay in bed at night and I wake up and doodle some things in there. And it was very much like, I don't know, it's kind of like going into Dragon's Den you know, you get the appointment on Dragon's Den and then you realise you haven't actually invented anything yet. Um, so I just knew that I'd sit down and I, like I said, I had a rough, just a rough idea of what I wanted it to be. And I was just really lucky in the sense that they were just very down to earth and spoke literally like this, like we're talking now, just spoke about it and just said, this is what I think could work. This is what I'd like to write. And yeah, like I said, just based on from page one, I wrote that in, I don't know, maybe two weeks. Just absolutely smashed it out, sent it in, not really thinking much of it by this point after quite a few disappointments. And oh, yeah, they just replied, like, yeah, let's do it. And that was it. They were just like, go away, finish the book, come back to us, and there's a very good chance that we'll take it on. And that was it. It's, it's amazing because you, you write in this kind of frenzy. There's almost like, there's, 
it's hard to break down like the thoughts of the stages because it all kind of happens. Um, so the so the idea of the story is it's, it follows these five people around the world and they all get a message, you know, saying something horrible is going to happen to someone that you love unless you play the game. How did that hook come to you? Where did that come from? Um, I can't even really recall. Yeah, like I said, it, it literally is like that. It's because I just scribble things out so fast. It kind of just married up with the scene. I had this opening scene of, I wanted it to just get really fast into it and, it sounds really stupid. I'd read like a lot of um, thrillers from around that time that were really quite like breakneck in pace. And I'd always been a bit of a slow burn writer. And I kind of read these and I was like, that looks like a really fun thing to do. I bet I can make it even faster. And that was it. I just wanted to write these chapters that were just like so fast pelting between them to really, it was almost like an experiment with myself. I wanted it to just feel really panicky and frenzied on the page. Like, imagine if these characters were going through a really panicky, horrible thing. Yeah, it was just like a really nerdy writing thing. Like, I wonder if I could kind of get that into the prose. So I just was sat doing it. And then the two ideas kind of married up. There was just this opening scene of all these different characters in one, like, 24-hour period losing someone. And then that just evolved into, yeah, the text message and just getting forced to do something. But... I didn't really have any idea of what I wanted them to do. It was more just getting them to do nothing. So, like, this is going to sound really weird. There's um, a story, a relative of mine was in the RAF years ago, and to get promoted to whatever he was, I'm not good at the technicals, to get promoted to, like, the next rank up, he had to do this horrible, horrible task for him where he just... You basically, all these different like little soldiers get put in the woods and you just get messages every couple of hours to just keep moving to a new location. And it just does it for days and days to exhaust them. Like the whole point of it, there's no, it's just getting them to do it because they have to do it because they've been told. And that was it. I guess that was always in the back of my mind. Like, that'd be pretty cool. But how far would people go? Like if someone took my kid, if I had a kid, I go on. If someone took my kid, you know, how far would you go if you, we're never given a chance to stop and breathe. If it was just so panicky, like keep moving, keep moving. So that was it. How how do you, if, if you're writing at this you know, frantic pace in the story because you want to see how quickly you can get to things, but it's a character piece as well. How do you develop the characters whilst it being pretty much a non-stop action, high concept thriller? Oh well, that's. That's the trick in it. That's where people read it and go, you've done a terrible job, Scott. No, <laughs> um, I don't know. It's more, again, it was very much like, okay, how if you were put with a stranger in a room and you only had that amount of time, so if I shoved you down into a room with someone you didn't know and was like, okay, both of you have got 10 minutes and I've got a gun to your relative's head. You know, how I wanted that like, I guess ambiguity as a reader as well to just be on the outside. And I guess that's the trick of it. Yeah. Just making them interesting enough. You haven't got a lot of physical space on the page to know everything about them. I just, I quite liked that idea. Just something different. Yeah. To, to still be invested in the characters. And that's just, yeah, that's the trick of concise writing, I guess. And that's why I found it a really enjoyable thing to write because, you need to show enough about them to care about them. But 
yeah, you, you want to keep the pressure on, basically, and the pressure on the reader as well. Thank you so much to Scott Kershaw for coming on the show. That debut is The Game, and it's out right now about a sinister game that people need to play in order to save their loved ones. It's his debut. If you fancy grabbing a copy, head to your local bookshop, all right? Uh, Now, next week, we'll be back with another brand new author to make sure you get that episode. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts, then it'll automatically download. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at WritersPod. You can get in touch on the contact page, writersroutine.com. And you can support the show at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Now, don't go anywhere. Uh, you'll hear the normal outro music and then you'll get the first chapter from the audiobook of the fantastic novel by Scott Kershaw, The Game. Stick around. It's on the way. I'll see you next week. Level one. Chapter one. Player One Just past sunrise, pallid light pours in freely through a broken window onto every parent's worst nightmare. The bed is empty, the child gone. Maggie Dawson is standing in the bedroom doorway paralysed, trying to process the scene. Her eyes go from the tousled bedsheets to the shattered window to her little boy's blanket on the fire escape outside. Her legs are heavy, lungs too small. She drops his breakfast, pop-tarts falling, and when air finally returns, she can barely scream his name. Jackson? The room is so cold there is frost on the carpet. Maggie stumbles forward, bare feet treading glass, and then hesitates at the window, too terrified to look, her thoughts a siren, a wailing litany. He fell... Oh, Jesus, he fell. He's down there, on the ground. Sometime in the night he fell. He's he's hurt. He's dead. He fell. He's... Outside is the wrought iron fire escape, one of those zigzagging staircases you see on mid-rise apartment buildings all across the states. Maggie lives on the highest floor, five stories up. Even the fresh snowfall wouldn't have done much to cushion a fall. She wants to close her eyes, to turn away, but she has to see. Through the cracks between her fingers, she glances down, holding her breath. No Jackson. No tracks in the snow. Nothing. Just his Spider-Man blanket caught up on the handrail, the fabric frozen stiff as if he wet it in the night. Has he run away from her? Would he do that? Last night's forecast was for twenty below freezing. A grown man couldn't cross the city in that, let alone a boy. Her boy. Her son. She focuses on the window, shards on the floor, broken inwards. A heavy gust might have done that, or something to do with ice. Fluctuations in temperature? She has to get her head together. This is St. Paul, for Christ's sake. The land of Minnesota nice. It isn't Mexico or Venezuela or Brazil. Children don't just vanish here. Do they? Her palms slap the pockets of her flannel dressing gown and come up empty. Sprinting back through the flat, she finds her phone charging beside the sofa where she woke up only minutes ago. There's something on screen, a text message. Without pausing to read it, she dials. 911, what's the address of the emergency? My my son, 
My son is gone. I, I think... The words are heavy, choking, impossible. Somebody took him. Somebody took my boy. The voice on dispatch is firm, trained. Can you give me the address? Apartment 13, uh, Laurel Flags, Western Avenue North. Okay, the clicking of keys. A car is on the way. How old is your son? Eight. I went into the room and he's just... He's just gone. What's your name? M Maggie. M Margaret Dawson. How old are you, Maggie? Twenty-four. No, tw twenty-five. Are you alone? Yes. Is the apartment secure? The window in his room is... It looks as if it's been broken from the outside. The rest of this conversation is hurried and indistinct. Did she see anything? No. Did she hear anything? No. The woman tells Maggie not to touch anything. She tells her to wait. Help is coming. Maggie hangs up and tries to steady her lungs. Breathe. She looks around the living room, an empty southern comfort bottle by the sofa. It was only half full to begin with, but it paints a lousy picture. The roach of a single joint is lying like a dead bug inside the bottle. Just enough to help her sleep, she told herself. Enough to pass out on the couch and sleep through anything. God, she wishes she could wake up from this nightmare. She snatches up the bottle, the last of the weed, the papers and the lighter, and stuffs them all into a grocery bag. Then she bursts out of her apartment and drops the bag into the chute at the end of the fifth floor corridor. From somewhere far below she hears the contents crunch. Her head is light. Turning back, she sees slick, bloody footprints leading from the front door. The glass in her feet. Fuck! Tears finally come as she hurries back inside for paper towels. All she needs now is for the cops to find her mopping up blood by the rubbish chute. Way to go, Maggie. Whoever said you were irresponsible. She checks her phone before making it to the kitchenette to see how many minutes have passed. Only now does she pay attention to the notification on screen. She opens the text message, stopping dead, and reads. It isn't long, but it takes her a while, as if the words are composed of another language altogether. They aren't. Concise, clear, cutting, their simplicity is chilling. She gets to the end and starts again. Twice. There's a photograph attached. She downloads the image. It's hard to take in. She drops to her knees. She is surely having a heart attack. Moments later, the phone is back against her ear. This time it's a man. 911, what's the address of the emergency? I, I, I just called about my son, she croaks. He's... What's the address? Western Avenue North? Western North... Tapping keys, a casual sniff. Are you Maggie? Yes. You reported your child missing. Yes, but... Officers are on the way. They should be there in... I found him! She says it so fast it sounds like a scream. You found your son? Yes. She can't quite believe what she's saying. If she hangs up now, the help will arrive. There'll be sirens, uniforms, guns. But they'd never find Jackson alive. The message she just read was simple. The photograph speaks for itself. The rules are clear. He was hiding. 
she hears herself whisper. A prank! It says here that you reported a broken window on the premises. I panicked. It's open is all. The room is cold, so cold. For a while, the man is silent. Silence is bad. In her mind, Maggie can already hear this atrocity being played back on the evening news. Okay, Maggie, he says. You sound as if you're in shock. I'm going to let our officers proceed as planned, and... No! She's close to hysterics. Can't you hear what I'm telling you? He's fine. I don't need them here. Ma'am? Just like that, the tone has somehow changed. I need you to remain calm and stay right where you are. The officers are only two minutes away. If you need any... She hangs up. Her thumb does it for her, her body working faster than her brain. Two minutes away. Two minutes. She needs to move. Now. One more glance at the image on her phone, the photograph of her boy, is enough to get her going. She yanks a pair of red high tops onto her feet, bursts out of her apartment, and hurtles past the bloody footprints and down the staircase through the belly of the building. One minute. She runs out into the snow in her dressing gown and underwear, with nothing but her phone in her hand. Her son has been taken, the police are almost here, and yet Maggie Dawson is fleeing the scene. It's a little past eight o'clock on a January morning. The game has just begun. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 